0: What does motion sound like? With Hands free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Ah. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at slash socks
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal
2: Season 3 Episode 4 The Invitation is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello everybody, Mike Bloom here. Apologies if I look a little green, just came off of a hell of a boat ride and I am still singing the tale about it as well as our recap of the penultimate episode of The Witcher Season 3 Volume 1 as the conclave begins and seemingly all of our forces begin to converge into what will be a star-studded conclusion. Speaking of stars, I am bringing on a PSR star in his own right. Of course, Josh has some other business to attend to. He received a mysterious note and decided to go off and, you know, do the bidding of Amir. So in his stead, I have sent out my own invitation and brought on this guy. He is practically a mage, considering the magic he is able to spin when it comes to talking about and perhaps playing in the world of fantasy it is the great dm philly rich how are you
3: i am so good thank you for the invitation mike i'm sad to lose josh to mage school this week but i am very glad to be here and i'm excited to talk about the witcher
2: with no offense to josh he is 100 an eel at this point right ah. Like, he's got- <laughs> enjoy your lightning pond
3: josh wiggler have fun in there
2: well your opinions are sure to be as electric as josh's state right now even before we get into this episode, Rich, of course, this is your first time talking Witcher with us. And you are someone who I would say, without putting too many words in your mouth, is at least vaguely familiar with the fantasy genre. Where does the work of Andre Sapkowski, The Continent, fall into your own global perspective when it comes into fantasy? When did you start getting into The Witcher, the books, the games, the show?
3: This is where I was excited to come and talk to you because the show is my entry point. I was very mm. familiar with the games. Uh, the Witcher 3 obviously like exploded. I'm a big video gamer and like live in that space. But I just never got on it. Uh, I'm a PC gamer. I don't have consoles these days. And so I never played it. And when the show dropped, I'm one of these uh, fantasy nerds, Mike, who typically the show's about to come out. I will voraciously double back to read the books. Famously, The Wheel of Time. This is when I finally rallied to read that epic series and i loved it so much i wouldn't put it down and read it twice so why after watching the first season of the witcher i didn't get to the books in time i hadn't played the game and i just fell so deeply and madly in love with henry cavill as gerald that i was like you know what i have played this game before along with dungeons and dragons i am not going to read the source material until this show is said and done and i can like go back and revisit it and do that compare and contrast having taken the show at face value on its own merits uh that said you know, I've spent my life in the fantasy space and and once upon a time, a show like this is a thing of dreams. I would wish for something this exciting to exist in a fantasy space. So I really like the show and I am not burdened by any of the um, baggage that comes with the source material, which I often talk about book adaptations around here. And it can be a real challenge to compare an adapted work to this piece of fiction that you loved so deeply over the years, you know.
2: Yeah, and listen, it's always a good opportunity to be able to shed that load and carry on foot and not necessarily have to worry about constantly comparing it to the source material. So, as someone who is doing that in a very different way in Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. I very much feel you like there. It feels as light and balanced as Geralt's sword held by Siri. What's interesting to me about this particular fantasy adaptation as well is obviously. The entire advent of the Witchers is to cure the continent of the plague of beasts that has been you know, roaming the countryside since the uh, conjunction of the spheres. And you are somebody who, as you mentioned before, does know a thing or two about Dungeons and Dragons, hence the (laughs) DM in DM Philly. So talk to me about that perspective, because we're actually going to face down with one of these beasts in this episode. What have you thought about the monsters, especially in comparison to how integral that is to a Dungeons and Dragons campaign?
3: I love it, it's fantastic I mean the world building is just excellent right, Um, this whole like setting and style, it's a low magic setting which we love, you and I talked about the rings of power but that's a low magic world middle earth, that is optimistic and effervescent, right uh, fundamentally like the source material we have there it, it ends positively and it's a world with optimism and hope, and so I love the grim, dark, grimy world that the Witcher exists in, and the monsters uh like are no exception to that right like what the witcher does so excellently is the same thing dnd has been doing for 50 years since it showed up in the 70s which is adapting all of these traditional mythological boogeymen that we're familiar with that come for like these disparate countries obviously the witcher are very focused and and um like derived from its its eastern european roots right but the way that we get to see these creatures uh come to life on the show, it's delightful, right? It's just awesome. Like, I there are a few monsters across the series that I think look bad, just the CGI-wise, the kineticism, they do such a good balance. A challenge I have as a dungeon master, when you have a bunch of like mortal-sized people fighting these larger-than-life creatures with scimitar-like tusks, Mike, like <laughs> it gets harrowing, right? And the way that um, I mean, Henry Cavill is a big dude, but the way that they're able to really effectively handle these action scenes is the best part of the monsters to me right the the like kinetic energy and it's well known that henry like does so much of a stunts on this show and i think you see it the choreography is like excellent the combat's excellent and the monsters are like horrific and terrifying while like feeling familiar right Mm. Um, you know i love a shape-shifting dragon like all of it it's just all really great stuff
2: Well, let's get into it beasts and all and you talked about loving the grim and dark let's start in a very grim dark place here in Nilfgaard and certainly along the way rich I'm definitely going to be like poking you and surveying your thoughts about this increasingly ballooning cast of characters. I suppose we'll start here in Nilfgaard, much like the episode does as Kahir and Amir sort of do the morning after on Kahir's big kill of Rabia Melf. May he rest in peace. So this is definitely something that's out of fantasy as well, right? The big evil faction, be it a kingdom, a religious organization, perhaps both in this case of Amir, especially as someone who doesn't necessarily have that versed background in the books. What have you been thinking about the way Nilfgaard has been shown? especially as of late with Dooney finally getting his screen time here.
3: Yeah, really. Uh, very fascinating. So so the whole use of politics is really interesting, right? I think I like it. I'm always drawn to the political intrigue and the Machiavellian maneuvers. And I think, obviously, in a lot of ways, you have a fantasy show with a marquee this big. They're trying to draw on what people loved about Game of Thrones. I think it's a little ineffective across the series just because it's been so like diluted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't like the game of the continent or the game of spheres. It's The Witcher. And so our stories have been so focused I think that Nilfgaard got presented certainly in season one as like the big bad right this yeah. menacing evil empire that we know so little about and Kay here we've we've gotten more into it and Kay here is a really compelling character I think he's like a great entry point into that I dug a lot of like the exploration that we had in season two I just don't know the thing about Game of Thrones is like certainly there were antagonistic sides I don't know that there were that many Lannister fans coming out of like season one Episode one, but Nilfgaard has like so consistently been the enemy right Uh, Mm -hmm. that i don't have a lot of like connective feelings or empathy or motivation there they just feel like the bad guys right like everybody's unifying up against them that said everything with k here and the whole like betrayal and the potential alliance with this elven bro they're like i really enjoyed where it leaves us and this whole like tumultuous fraught relationship between he and his monarch like he's such the loyal servant and the soldier in season and the way that relationship has evolved is fascinating. So I don't know if I have a great perspective of Nilfgaard as a whole, Mike, but they feel like a good bad kingdom, if that yeah. makes sense.
2: I yeah. mean, what you've correctly clocked in my opinion is that I do think Kahir is starting to get the Kool-Aid to leave his blood a mm-hmm. little bit, much like the blood that he spilled last episode, as Amira is going to commend him for what he was able to do. You asked what I did without hesitation and then you cleaned up your mess, even though you caused much more of one This is going to be the first of what turns out to be many notes over the course of this episode, but this will be the most mysterious, as Kahir is going to give Amir his first assignment now back as his right-hand man, and Kahir is still a little shaken, right? This is the latest he's ever slept. He is still having Siri dreams, of which we're still not entirely sure if it indeed means that they have this connection, as Kahir is alluding to, but he flat-out asks Amir, how do you know if you're doing the right thing? Amir just doesn't answer. It says, yeah, just put your head down and get this job done because once it's done, you'll have everything that you want. Let go of the questions. Embrace what we have done together. And I want to tie this onto a scene that happens a lot later but is so incredibly disconnected from everything else going on, which is essentially everyone gathering at Aratuza with the elves, which, again, is something we see time and time again in fantasy-based fiction. Rich, the way the elves are presented here, especially given their own history of genocide and objectification certainly paints more of a historical lens on it this could be another one where I could understand it feeling like Nilfgaard a bit scattered across the past couple seasons that it's hard to glean an opinion of them but do you have one
3: I do yeah Uh, just to like talk a little bit more about Kay here I think what I really love about this type of archetype and you see it in a lot of stories is like when you have a character with absolute kind of impenetrable conviction that is then shattered right with this like seed of doubt kind of like worming the cracks throughout it just it's it's such a great story to kind of explore and like that that like slow crumbling of faith but to the elves I love the depiction of the elves in the continent throughout the witcher the show it is a little scattered i don't have like a great beat on all of the political players there but what i love about it is it, it um again it's just the way that it leans into this grim dark setting um when i played dnd in the 80s it was a much less it was always a game for um the the misfit toys mike and, and <laughs> folks who maybe didn't fit in elsewhere right this was like the collection of people that i found along my youth playing D. but there were these really traditional kind of ideas about like oh yeah the elves and the humans and the elves being presented it's a tolkien thing is like a monolithic culture that the elves are very you know, the monoliths from- are
2: being studied by istred
3: yeah fair <laughs> enough fair enough he is notably a friend to the elves but um i i really just like love the the kind of like I don't love prejudice. I love the depiction of, like, these real-world issues through the fantasy lens. This is part of what drew me to it as a young man, right? There's so much allegory that we can apply to these stories and the way that, like, oh, we're the same but different. It's the same kind of, like, debates and that we're trying to overcome uh, currently and have been for, like, centuries as a species, right? So actually making it more complex in the same way that you can with religion in a fantasy world by being like, no, definitively, this is a different species of people but we can breed together and we can live together and there's not really that much distinction except for this cultural gulf that has presented itself between us and this perpetuation of like violence and bigotry that we have all fallen into right the way that that like is able to articulate the cycle of violence, it's just really effective to me. So I like the elves as they're presented in the world of The Witcher. I think it's like a very traditional way to view a lot of like fantasy worlds in terms of of these kind of social issues that would come up, right?
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you that I think on paper, it works so well as a thematic allegory, even more so than when Sapkowski originally wrote them as to like, the unfortunate plight of so many minority communities in Mm -hmm. this world that feels like we're actually moving to a condition not unlike the medieval setting of the Witcher sometimes. I do feel like what happens on paper though is still mistranslating a bit to on screen. It's not helped by the scattered screen time. Also not helped by the fact that like Francesca who is the leader of the elves and will continue to be now that Rabia Melf is no more has just been kind of sitting there The entire season, they've been in, you know, three out of five episodes because they're not going to be in the next one. That's the other interesting thing about this episode is that we're gonna like put pause on the elves, on Nilfgaard. we're gonna put a pause on even Yaskir and Siri by the end of this, because next episode is the entire conclave, right? In that like really well done, but still very bottle-esque episode. And so to sort of leave things where they are right now, with Kahir coming with a big basket of fruit truthfully saying hey rabia melf came to us trying to stage a coup and amir killed him to want to you know make sure our relationship is good and then handing her this mysterious note saying okay this is these are our next steps together for the white flame it's an interesting note to leave things on but i do feel like to your point it's a good representation of both of the states of these particular storylines which is sort of like francesca's elves up to this point a bit starving along and hoping for the scraps of stories that are thrown their way.
3: Yeah I think that's really fair you know I really Like the show overall it's become like a Comfort show for me I know my friend Taylor Ball is very similarly uh, We, It's a show that like is often Second monitor content for me Mike I've Watched mm. the first season I don't know four or five Times amidst like uh, doing the Dishes and folding laundry and whatnot Right so I, I, I'm with You there I think like in the same way That I know the non-linear like Storytelling of season one got a lot Of flack but I feel like the kind Of like inconsistency episode to episode in terms of what we're doing they would be almost better served to like completely silo the elves until it's time to like really shine a light in there right um i can see in like one sense i I, like have read enough about the book to screen adaptations that i know we're like focusing in on specific stories right like four and five are adapting a particular one of the witcher stories in season three here so i do think like the the efficacy of their like execution is a little bit debatable but fundamentally like i'm on board with that Story. And I hope that uh Francesca does like end up taking a bigger role in the back half. Like I was so intrigued by the the kind of trifecta of the women and the visions and everything that was happening in mm. season two. I really liked watching her emerge as a more prominent character. And I hope like we're not done with her just yet.
2: Well, that being said, do you have any idea either speculative or based on the source material as to where? they may be going in volume two because so, it's clear they're on a mission together. We know that officially at the end of episode five, Vilgaforts is the employer, the mysterious guy who has been working with slash for Nilfgaard. Is that going to translate over to this mysterious mission that has been given? Does that mean that Kahir and Francesca will also go to Aratuza? Or do you think what they've been given to do is much more separate and so we'll keep them separate continuously throughout volume two
3: you know my like initial instinct i'll never forget mike once upon a time uh, the first time i heard josh wiggler talk about game of thrones and he said you don't put a giant ice wall in the north if you're not going to knock it down and it had literally never occurred to me until that <laughs> point so i think to that same extent like i've always looked at Aratusa, it's the dungeon master in me mike it's like oh, this is a fantastic set piece for like a throwdown knockout mm-hmm. like battle, right? Like something horrific and terrible is going to go down here and I can't wait. With all of our characters like um, kind of consolidating there within one storyline, I can't help but wonder if the this group is going to collapse back there. But then especially when you throw in like the Vilgefort spin at the end, right? Like, is he just going to kind of open the doors for them and let them kind of come rolling in to the Mage Tower? Because that seems like, um, just in terms of again the Dungeons and Dragons of it all, and the way that I think as somebody that's trying to like manage the pieces of a living world in real time for a group, like this is a really important power center on the continent, right? Like holding control of Aratusa feels like incredibly important, Mike. Yeah, uh, it, to like just even if you're able to like knock the mages out of there and destabilize them, they're like the the edge of the sword that's going to like fight back against this Nilfgaard movement. So. I feel like it drives towards Aratusa, but that also feels like very obvious and um like it might cost a lot of money that they don't have to spend for half a season, right? So what do I know?
2: Well, let's continue to stay on that Aratusa boat though. That's where we go in this next scene as Yennefer is going to make her official shark tank or eel tank, I suppose, pitch for <laughs> this conclave in front of the brotherhood. She has to do that awkward theater in the round thing where like Her back is always to a mage, so she's continuously turning, and they have her spinning as well. Obviously, a very tough crowd to petition to after what she did to them in Season 2. And, of course, initially Tasea is really, like, the only one to step forward. Everyone literally laughs at her of, like, yeah, duh, of course you'd be the one to support this, like, absolutely ridiculous proposition. But Yennefer is able to get the majority of the mages on her side, thanking everyone for their forgiveness of the past, and she feels like This will be the first step to not only her regaining their trust, but again, trying to pursue this greater cause of showing a united front against this ever-pressing force of Nilfgaard. Now, before we move on from this, of course, Rich, I would be remiss not to ask your thoughts on, of course... Yennefer of Vengerberg.
3: Yennefer of Vengerberg is a stone cold badass, man. I have like yeah. a huge witch affection. I I love a college of of powerful wizards and witches. This is my jam very much. Uh, Yennefer of Vengerberg could hang with the Aes Sedai if need be. She's a really cool character. I don't love the storylines of like I've lost my magic. I get my magic back. It's a very yep, common in line. Kind of <laughs> trope in a lot of these stories about magical characters. I never really love that. I do feel. Feel like to pick a knit of season three like she was kind of accepted back into the fold in a way that I thought was a little fast right mm. like there are times where I feel like the witcher's got too many episodes and times where I feel like it's maybe not got enough Mike but Yennefer is a great character and it's an awesome portrayal that we're getting Uh, I really like love uh, the relationship between her and Tessa is fantastic Uh, the like levels of complexity I always love this kind of like perilous love hate is it a toxic relationship? Isn't it? I'm trying to be supportive, but I'm a damaged person. Um, so Yennefer is fantastic, right? And, and some of my favorite stuff. Of season three so far has been getting to have her back with yeah with um, gerald and siri obviously like episode one of, of season three here one of my favorite episodes of the witcher i just mm. love the three of them as a group i think are bringing like such tremendous energy for each other to play off of but she's great she's very cool
2: so one thing I want to bring up before we move on from this scene is something that I mentioned in retrospect during our episode-by-episode episode Blitzkrieg podcast where, as Jennifer is giving her diatribe, she's going to say, you know, we will be a united front. No more lies. No more secrets. And after that particular line, it cuts to Vilgefortz. <laughs> I would love to ask you, Rich, because, again, he will have, what, like a couple of scenes in this episode, if mm-hmm. that. I know Josh has certainly talked about how He felt the reveal didn't work as well for him because he was personally trying to remember Vilgefortz when the reveal happened. We'll obviously talk more about this in the next episode, but what was your reaction when it was revealed to you? Either, again, through your research or on the show that he was the man behind the curtain. And how do you look back on it now during moments like this that might be foreshadowing that reveal?
3: So uh this is where like my own words are gonna come back to haunt me, Mike, because the Witcher is often second monitor content for me. And I love Vilgafort straight up, dude. The end of like season two, when he's doing the whole thing with the sword, he has the sword, the sheet that keeps like teleporting to his hand, he's fine. I mean, yeah,
2: that was sort of shades of vax, right? With the uh disappearing dagger and reappearing dagger.
3: Absolutely. It's fantastic. I love this notion of like, um, it's the Gandalf of it all. Like a wizard doesn't have to just throw darts and carry a staff. The fact that he He's got a sword and he's capable and he's physical and young and athletic and all this stuff. I really liked him as a character. I like the uh, relationship with Tissaia, though, like I want more character development there for those two. I think it works at, it worked as a reveal for me. I certainly knew who Vilgafortz was and was like tracking him throughout the season. And as we come to the end and get this, like, oh my god, it's not Stragebor, he just feels like such a mustache twirler and mm-hmm. Graham Tavish, whose name I always forget, Dijkstra is it? Yep, um, Dijkstra. Like he was another just such menacing kind of figure of of like danger throughout all of season two that it was kind of shocking to me that it was Vilgafortz. But honestly, Mike. I then found myself saying like, wait, Did we all know this already? Doesn't he like almost get killed at the end of season two and then get replaced or there's some like insinuation of something nefarious or am I just making all of that up? And that's where like I'm damning myself for not having watched it closely enough recently. Cause I feel like there was like a little bit of a seed planted in that Vilgefort's like near death at the end of season two, that like not all is as it seems.
2: Yeah. So he does fight Kahir at the end of season one and Kahir is able to best him and throw him down a cliff, but he does not die. And Vilgefortz also goes, like, disobeys Yennefer, where she keeps telling him, mm-hmm. like, don't go too aggro, you're going to waste your powers. And indeed, yes. he runs out of his fun little dagger trick enough for Kahir to get the jump on him and dispatch of him. So looking back on it, yeah, for all we know, that could have been, like, a stage fight, you know, make it look real type of thing. Or it might have been a display of, This impetuousness and rashness that Vilgefortz has said he has, but has not necessarily displayed except for all this behind the scenes dealings
3: the reveal really worked for me i appreciate the context it's been a minute since i've rewatched uh, all of season one i i like vilgefortz as a character i i'm like a little concerned about what they're going to do here i would really prefer it if this turn is because of some philosophical motivation that he has and not i'm being mind controlled you know what i mean mm-hmm. i want there to be um I want there to be like some political tension to the to the extent that I keep referencing Game of Thrones they're trying to get into this like real kind of War of the Roses political maneuvering stuff and I think that as attention's going to focus a little bit more on that I presume through the back of season two I want to know like Vilgefortz's worldview and what's motivating him what's driving him why he's making these choices and I would like it to be from a philosophical perspective that like akin to I don't know some of my favorite conflicts it's not necessarily going to be like a battle to overpower him at the end but a battle to like win win his mind back right and convince him like dude you're being an idiot um so i don't know if that's too like hopeful or optimistic Mm. but, but so far it's working for me it left me curious as far as where we're going for the second half of the season
2: I mean, it's very Siri of you to be so hopeful as to where we're going to go. And I I share that optimism. But speaking of Siri, let's go after our little opening stinger here to Siri and Geralt, who are reconnecting after they reunited at the end of episode three with the Wild Hunt pursuing them. This is where Geralt is going to re-explain for us, especially those that are second monitoring it, about like, (laughs) hey, remember you opened the door to the other spheres because of your elder blood? And yeah, it's very possible that you didn't necessarily completely close and lock the door, which is, hey, one reason why we should go to Aratusa. Siri is going to continue to sort of dig her heels about Aratuza after she had that conflict with Yennefer last episode. And it comes down less so to, oh, I'm scared they're going to turn me into an eel or, oh, no, those people were so fake. But Siri is going to flat out tell him, what if I'm just not good enough? And he is going to be very soft and kind with her in this moment he says that he knows she's scared because she's struggling with her abilities but if she embraces who she is she can access whatever she wishes and i'm sure rich you have a lot of thoughts about these two characters but let me try to at least talk about it through the the lens of this relationship what did you make of this scene especially how it corresponds to your own feelings about how much this duo has developed
3: I always love a dynamic like this. Like I named, I name checked it already. But Willow is very much a story of like this older, curmudgeonly mentor and like the young, budding apprentice. You know, this energy is fantastic. It's Arya and the Hound. I think Mm. the two of them have great chemistry together. I love, uh, you know, I say like, oh, not enough episodes, too many. I think when it comes to the relationship between these two, like the screen time has been just right. It's the Goldilocks spot of like, it feels earned, especially after season two and all the time that they spent together and her training and Gerald kind of being relentless. Again, I talked about it with Kay here, right? But we meet Gerald as like this impregnable wall of, of stony heart. Uh, he's not going to let the emotions break in. And like in that way, his resolve shatters, right? That he's not going to like entangling himself in these emotional relationships. And he's come to care for this girl and to love her like his daughter, the beat at the end where he says, I'm proud of you dude it's such a small thing but like yeah I love it because it is a relationship between a father and a daughter and it's fraught enough <laughs> they're like imperiled from every side so like that little bit of acknowledgement of her growth which we have seen across seasons of TV and of like his growth to be able to say that and know how important it is to her right Um, I don't want to like meander too far away from it but I, I think that like these two really sell it for me right um, I obviously I keep saying henry cavill's name because god bless the man i love mm-hmm. him he just embodies like he brings so much life and energy and charisma oh, yeah. to this show right um but i think as like a young actress it's it's got to be tough to have to be the scene partner for gerald or rivia uh, henry cavill and, like uh she does a terrific job i really love the two of them together
2: yeah i think to your point it was a great way of both characters meeting halfway that Again, Siri has been showing this indignation against Aratuza for basically an entire episode at this point. But here, I think she finally feels open enough to reveal to someone, okay, the real reason why maybe I don't want to go is because like I'm scared that I'm just not going to be good at this at the end of the day. That like all these all this training, all these proclamations, it's so relatable. And then even more relatable from my perspective to like have someone be there in a moment where she truly sort of dissolves from this like very toughened warrior mage that she has built herself up to be the past two seasons to like the little girl that she was and in the beginning of the first season to have him approach her seeing her in that way and be like it's okay I'm going to talk to you like I should be in this moment and tell you that you can do this and you will do this it just hit the complete right balance for me I totally agree with you that this is a dynamic that Really works as it should be because it's the heartbeat of the show. They've really put in the work to do so. We're gonna have a scene later on in the episode that I think is even better and one of Henry Cavill's best of the entire series. But this is just a fantastic microcosm of what I love about these characters.
3: It's just so human of her, and what I love about it is it's brave, right? Um, like this girl has been taught to like fight monsters, to deal with magic, but like, gosh. How much bravery does it take to muster up as a person to be like, I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I'm afraid I'm not going to be good. I mean, now. that's what you're <laughs> going to say later
2: on, right? Like saying you're afraid is about the bravest thing you can do.
3: Yeah, it's just so fantastic and earnest and vulnerable in all the ways that, uh, you know, you need it to be for it to emotionally resonate. It's it's a really good start with these two of this episode. Yep.
2: Well, let's talk about emotions placed in a very different place as Yen and Tissaia are going to connect you know they're going to sort of like squee a bit over the bracelet that Fords had given her and we're gonna get a little bit of a background that will play into the next episode where Tissaia and Philippa Eilhart had apparently a falling out Tissaia just replies that the friendship has ran its course though things will come out a bit more in the next episode in the meantime Triss is going to come in and point out like Hey, off screen, another novice is gone, and I don't know. There's <laughs> a blood stain. We should probably work on that. And to say is like, it's fine. We sent everyone on a field trip. They're good. I don't know, Rich. That callousness. Even though when we first met, to say she was pretty damn callous. It kind of makes me feel like okay, she has to be glamoured by Vilgefortz at this point, right? Like that just feels like bad rectoring to say, yes. yeah, students keep disappearing. It's fine. I'm sure they're around here somewhere.
3: Yeah, especially if they're not accounted for the eel pool. What do you do it just say um again like I'm um, I'm conflicted here, right? Part of me loves the idea that oh yeah, she's like glamored. She's being mind controlled too. There's some kind of love potion. Who even knows what it is? But then the other part of it likes the humanity of it, right? Uh, the idea that like, yeah, there is this vulnerability to this woman. She, like Gerald, uh, like Hay here, has built up this kind of impregnable wall to guard herself from her emotions. Like how many girls has she had to watch get turned into eels? Like that's gotta uh, bring with it its own kind of PTSD. And so you compartment when you're somebody in that kind of role so i wonder to myself if like is this just a human vulnerability that she like against all hope has like come to love this man and like is not looking as closely as she needs to be because that's pretty compelling to me if it's done right you know if like Mm -hmm. it's executed well i'll really like that but there is also the element of like God, she's a very capable woman to just, like, get love blindness. I don't know if that's, like, a great look, you know? So, uh sure, she could be glamoured, but either way, it feels like something is not right.
2: Yeah, well, at least we have two other mages on the case, if not to say. Uh, here is a partnership between Triss and Istred. I suppose their ship name is Tristred. And should we be shipping them, Rich? I don't know if it's just the way the actress played this. I got a very, like flirty bantery vibe from Triss in particular when she was chatting with Istrid.
3: I think, especially on the heels of episode three, we can imagine that maybe like everyone at Ara is a little flirty, Mike. It's yeah. um, like a real comfort level there. But honestly, like, I'm glad you're putting this down because I was picking it up. And like, I think there was something to the chemistry of the actors together. It was a great scene. I like Istrid, but he's a character that I feel like after that initial arc with Yennefer, they've been a little like, all right, what do we do with this guy? You know, um, that was like a fun episode in season two where he's kind of rolling with gerald but i like seeing the two of them together um and like giving them a job and giving them a mission especially as they're about to like kind of roll up to the ball a little bit later i feel like there's some energy here i would not be upset to have the two of them kind of paired off for a couple more episodes, doing their like Sherlock and Watson detective vibes on what's happening, right?
2: Yeah, because they've taken Kodringer and Fen's spot right now as like the requisite detectives of the show, because right now they sort of put together their own disparate storylines to figure out, okay, maybe this is actually all happening under the same watchful eye that Estrid is saying, all right, well, if all the girls that are kidnapped happen to be half Elvin. And the fact that the monolith book I wanted was to essentially open up like a portal to a new world for the elves to seek refuge. Perhaps someone is actually kidnapping the girls to banish elves for good. Now, this is sort of left a bit nebulous as of next episode, right? Because we'll find the book itself in Stregabor's vault. But we know that Stregobor is the red herring and that Vilgefortz is the one that's been kidnapping the girls, clearly wanting to make fake series. But at least in this moment, it's going to have them yoke their cause to what's going on with Geralt and Yennefer next episode.
3: Yeah, uh, and and I mean it's a good way to thread them back in, right? I think, um, I, I, you know, I know a little bit from the source material, like there there's some Tris Marigold conflict, and in terms of the depiction and the relationship with Gerald. But the way that like these two were so instrumental to Yennefer and Gerald in season one, and kind of like at the start of things, and having them like circle back in as like uh, having found their own footing or value or accomplishment. I think that like both of them have clearly been individuals that. But at least in the show are depicted to have been struggling uh, since like everything with Triss in season two and not mm-hmm. being able to help Siri and everything with Istrid, like you know, kind of Jennifer, that whole fraught relationship. So having the two of them like uh, connect with with Jennifer and Gerald works. Uh like there's conflict there, there's inherent tension built into those relationships. It's like only gonna make it very fun to watch, Mike.
2: Well, let's talk about connections here as Geralt and Ciri are going to connect with Yaskir. They're all going to Aratuza together on a ferry and they are able to get on board by promising the ferryman that they will kill whatever monster is in the water. Now, Ciri is practically drooling at this point as she will point out in very meta fashion, like, yeah, we spent the entirety of season two training me to be a witcher. I should probably (laughs) use that in some way. We will get a brief pause from the action though in lieu of some music. Now, I mentioned this during our episode one podcast. Yaskier had this throwaway line of, if I die, don't let Valdo Marx play at my funeral. And now we see why. As Valdo Marx's troupe is going to show up, what I called Witcher perfect. They're harmonizing. They're playing the concertinas. And Valdo is very much a blustery, famous type, right? Already gets half-priced just by face alone. This brings me no comfort, especially from a lover of all things musical. In retrospect, honestly, the thing that worked the least for me out of everything in volume one of The Witcher season three is Valdo Marx's troupe.
3: It's really bad, Mike. <laughs> I uh, We we got to talk about the Rings of Power last fall. I notably complained a lot about some specific music used in that show, and it was not nearly as egregious to me as this. It just felt like a show tune. I was waiting for Judas to show up on that boat and start singing Jesus Christ Superstar, man. Yeah, like- the
2: the riffing, the high kicks. like It's something you would see at a drag bar, and it's not like you can't do this. I watched Blood Origin. They had a bard, and they had, you know, someone singing in the style while still putting their personal affectations into it, this felt so completely anachronistic. And I know that yes. Yasker as a character who sort of treads that line, they flat out cross that line and run over it and don't look back with Valdo Marks.
3: Dude, Yasker like is, is dropping liquid fire though. Like, you know, toss a coin, your witcher is so good. It's so catchy. And most importantly, an earworm. And then in season two, what is it called? What, what for do you yearn? Like, that song's fire, man. That Mm -hmm. is really, really good, you know? Um, I have not made it through Blood Origin, I will confess, but this just was so jarring, right? Um, Like, I like musicals. I love Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't need it in the middle of my Witcher fight scene. Like, it just felt so jarring and forced, and like, gosh, it's one of those things. It's a Guardians of the Galaxy baby group, right? Like, you make Mm. the thing, and then you discover. Like, after it's done, oh my god, people really love this, right? And so you you want to highlight it. You want to give Yaskier the big badass ballad in season two. Awesome. It worked. Like, it was really, it was well executed. But this just felt a little forced and ham-fisted and like okay this is clearly a thing they want to do you know they want to build up their ensemble but it's so out of left field and i get they're trying to bring some levity into a show that doesn't have a ton of it but there's enough like (laughs) there's enough it just didn't work for me at all and i'm glad that you feel similarly and i'm not the bad guy uh just you know haranguing the musicians
2: well, let's touch back on land for a hot second as we get a very foreboding scene in retrospect between Yennefer and Vilgefortz. This will really be like the last appearance of Vilgefortz until the final sequence of the Are You Sure montage where Vilgefortz is going to essentially like do some sniffing around Yennefer, right? Basically asking, do you have a hidden agenda right now? You've already heard a once. I will not allow her to get hurt again. Uh, but Yennefer is nothing but smiles to him saying, I'm very happy to see the person that Taseya has become around you. I guess the other thing to tank around this scene though, Rich, is the fact that, A, you know, this perhaps could be a scene that will lead into what happens to Yennefer later on in this episode with the attack on her, but also Vilgeforce is going to tell Yennefer like, hey, I'm sending you a portal to Redania because she's going to make the the plea in person. But I'll make it personally just in case, you know, the employer is around. Lord knows you don't want him to track us. And Yennefer's like, oh, but it could be she. You know, women can be bitches, too. But it is interesting, again, especially looking back, that, like, he was very easy to state the pronoun on it, even though he feasibly could not have known who it may have been.
3: With the double bluff, is he doing that because he knows uh, that they're gonna think Estragon first, and it's like the insinuation. I I I like the the beat i think it especially lends to the turn later the like don't f with to you know it's mm-hmm. it, like forts we've seen portrayed if you remember him as like heroic so far right he's like very firmly on the side of erotusa he's very like in to camp in that way like he's one of our allies kind of that's at least like how i kind of perceive the show right like the people who are working like to the the efforts of of gerald and yennefer right um so I liked it. And then like the, the pivot on the whole like pronoun thing at the end, it feels like it's just a fun moment to like throw some commentary in there, but, but I do think it's uh, it's clever. And it left me wondering of like the insinuation, like how smart is he, is he getting, is it a mistake or is it like, uh, is it calculated beyond any measure? You know?
2: Yeah. Could it be that he is getting so close to this big scheme that he's been building towards that? Like he's letting the mass slip. A little bit, but there's just so much else going on. I don't know. Maybe he slipped up. He's like, oh, shit. All right. Well, I guess I better send Yennefer inside that painting of mine into that illusion because I got to take care of that, tie up that loose end.
1: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Well, let's tie up the loose end back on the boat here. This is a scene that I referenced loosely before that I just absolutely loved. Where during their downtime, Geralt is going to get back to the topic of why Siri feels like she's struggling magically. And she says, You know, I thought if I learned magic, it would diversify my skill set so I could become a better leader. But Maybe my grandmother was right. Maybe it's just easier to govern by steel and steel alone. But Geralt is going to lay out like a very hard and fast rule that he adopts in his life, which is to not take a life or at least not to do so lightly. He says a life has real meaning. It's a warm skin and a beating heart. It should only be taken as a last resort. Righteousness can easily become rage. Justice can easily become scorn. If you want to be a queen, be a queen, I think you'll make an excellent one. And there's sort of two separate statements in there. Rich, I would be remiss not to bring up the fact that you and I are also talking Star Wars on a very different podcast alongside Brendan Fitzpatrick. And the first half of this sentence here about how righteousness can easily become raised, justice can easily become scored. I mean, listen, I'm tracking Siri right onto the Ezra Bridger. of it. I'm seeing a very similar path of like, <laughs> Listen, you can fall into the dark side very easy. It's a lot easier to be bad than it is to be good.
3: I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's part of, again, like, the, the reason that I was always so drawn to fantasy is because in these heightened realities with these incredible stakes, you allow for, um like, these epic philosophies and these really, like, meaningful speeches and these, these like, powerful declarations of, like, motivation, right? Uh, it's fantastic as he talks about it. Like, look, nations, they're just like imaginary lines drawn on maps. Like, a life is something real. There's something so powerful to that and and it's an excellent you know, just to the writing of it all, like, I think the writing's a little all over the place in The Witcher. Sometimes it's, like,
2: Much like the stories,
3: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right? Sometimes it's fantastic, like, in this scene. And sometimes it's a little bit rote and, like, traditional TV. But it's such a great beat because it could come across as, like, you know, a little too highfalutin and over-the-top and too, kind of, like, reverential of itself, right? But it feels earnest in the delivery. It feels like a guy who's trying to leave an important lesson with this child and and really like convey something important while also like really giving us a lot of insight to gerald right he's like saying a thing that we've seen him embody before but now he's going to articulate it um and i i love it i I don't blame you for like really fixating on this scene it's a great moment between the two of them
2: and i think as well it pairs really nicely with a lot of statements about Siri from someone like Yaskier right? Of, she's a princess, Geralt. All she wants <laughs> to do is just, like, sit back and have babies. And Geralt's very much like, that is not Siri. And I think there is a distinct difference between, like, being a princess and being a queen. Especially given Siri's background, right? Where her grandmother, mm-hmm. Calanthe, it was a queendom. She was the one that had the final say at the end of the day. She is someone who, for many reasons is not just going to sit back. And so it was very much struggling with this idea of, I want to be a leader. I have the capacity to do so. She gives that monologue in episode one of like, I will be the great uniter. I am the one that has all this in common with everyone on the continent. I can unite the spheres once more. But then she has to come through and be like, I don't know exactly how I'll be able to do that. And so Geralt is just able to like, nudge her in different directions. He has learned his lesson about like, very strictly directing her without giving her any sort of sense of like consciousness with mm-hmm. it like that these are decisions that she has to make but at the same time he can advise her not only paths to go down but the fact that there is affirmation along the way of I think you'd be an excellent queen even if you don't think that you do and the smile that she gives him at the end I think says everything as I was beaming just as she was.
3: Yeah, I mean, I talked about it earlier, but I think it it really works in terms of like building character progression and growth, right? This man has changed from when we knew him in season two. You know, that was such a thing of like her running the obstacle course and all the other witchers being impressed at like how close she gets. And he does the very traditional curmudgeonly mentor thing of like, you know, walks off and like can't acknowledge like that was good. You didn't get it all the way, but that's a good start. So this growth that we see from him, of like recognizing that it's important for this young person who looks to him for so much for affirmation and love and protection and like uh, education and all of it for him to encourage her and to like validate her and to give those kind of affirmations. Like it's just so fundamentally important to a person, especially, you know, as she's like getting older throughout the story, presumably like this is like an adolescent kid that's like Mm -hmm. really struggling with like identity crisis. Self worth and like all of it, amidst all of the like perilous fantasy circumstances that are like specific to her life. So I I love this kind of stuff when it's like done well. It's gonna get me right in the heart every
2: time. I completely agree. So I know Geralt said that nations are invisible lines that people assign meaning to, but we have to talk about one particular (laughs) nation here, Rich. I want to get your thoughts on all things Redania because perhaps they are occupying the space on your wish list of political machinations that really are front and center especially this season and there are so many characters contained therein but as we segue to the funeral of the late great queen what have your thoughts been on redania especially as of late
3: I'm a little all over the place with Redania. I like that we have like really stepped into a secondary kingdom is important. I really love uh, Dijkstra as a character. I love Graham McTavish, right? Mm-hmm. He's another one of these like larger than life actors that you just put him on the screen and like, he brings the heat. Uh, the the whole like dynamic with he and Philip has been like interesting so far. Um the the king. What's the king's name? I forget. But but Viz- I le-
2: Vizimir, like Vizimir,
3: right? Uh, the names are all like so close. And Radovid is yes, is his brother, his brother, right? He's like okay. Uh, so so Vizimir is like such a fantastic fumbling prince, right? It's like fantastic because like, I think in a lot of stories since I keep talking about it because it's so big Game of Thrones, you get these Joffrey characters over and over again. And this to me embodies so much more of like the simpering, mostly incompetent and like vaguely toxic monarch, you know (laughs) what I mean? Like he's not like a straight up sociopath, but he's also like spoiled and entitled and like a little bit dimmer than most of the people around him and demanding and like... Like, he just... The the whole performance is fantastic, you know? The Dijkstra character was so menacing and he felt so competent in season two, Mike, Mm -hmm. that I feel like... um, He's just, like, waffled a little bit. He seemed, like, a little bit ineffectual to me across season three, like, the inconsistency of it there. So I'm not really sure how I feel about the, like, whole nation as a whole. The Radovan character is really interesting. Obviously we get, like, the the kind of evolution of the he and Yazgar's relationship, which is fascinating to me, but... I don't know. I like its inclusion. I think it's like a great addition to give us another setting that we're like diving into a little deeper. And a lot of the individual characters I like enjoy when they're showing up.
2: Yeah. I think your point about the roller coaster of Dijkstra's status is going to continue in this very scene mm-hmm. as Vizimir is going to give the eulogy at his very much mourned wife's funeral. And this is coming off of Dijkstra. Having just gotten back on top by ordering the assassination of the queen of the (laughs) kingdom that he's been assigned to, like that makes treachery look like jaywalking in terms of crime. And Vizimir is going to, of course, blame Nilfgaard, go along with the ruse. I love to that point about the aloofness, him using the funeral as an excuse to declare war. Like, all right, starting right now. So, everyone, go home, get improvised weapons, put on your battle helmets. We march tonight. But Yennefer has other ideas. She wants to proposition to Redania and to Philippa especially to come represent them with the Conclave. Remember, they are part of the Northern Kings. This is why Yennefer wants to do this, is to get Redania on their side. And of course, Dijkstra and Philippa are going to turn her away initially. But Yennefer, as much as Ciri might blanch it, is so good at bullshitting. She knows exactly what to say. She's going to approach Vizimir, offering her condolences, and says, you know, what I did last time, I get it. I was misguided, but that's me in the past. Serving nobility is a mage's greatest purpose, and right now, the nobility are in more danger than ever. I mean, look what happened to your poor queen. And so Redania needs protection from the Brotherhood, and it's right time, right place, right pitch. Vizimir laps it up, hook, line, and sinker. Despite the fact that Dijkstra is like explicitly telling him, do not believe her, he still does and says, okay. Philippa, Dijkstra, Radovid, you're all going to ROTUSA now.
3: Yeah, this is the beginning of, like, the redemption for Dijkstra to me. I really like the whole head handoff. I was like, oh, okay. He was feeling, like, a little bit like a petulant little kid, but I like this, like, competency. And then, like, Yennefer just getting the, like, leg up on him here. Like, again, to the depiction of Vizimir, like, Yennefer seems so transparently full of bullshit. It's such, like, a used car salesman pitch, but you believe that this guy will lap it up, right? (laughs) Like, he's exactly, like, Presented that way and then like Dijkstra's is like just pure indignation that this is going to be the case like it works it lands for me um I think it leaves us in like a great spot with with this whole ensemble
2: so let's go back on the boat for one final scene and what a scene it is Rich our bit of action in this episode is the battle against the Eskna, which is our monster of the episode. After Siri does the Pokédex entry of it in a previous yeah. scene, it finally comes out in full force. You talked about the visual effects on monsters previously. I thought they have been good this season, and I really like this as well. This is one of our first monsters that's done in the broad daylight besides the Wyvern mm-hmm. last episode, and I love the design of it. Like, the odd denture-like teeth that don't fit in the mouth necessarily, like jutting out from it and once again a lack of eyes or at least from initial perception and it's a pretty easy beating right the only one that truly suffers a big l is that one guy boris who gets deep blue seed a la samuel l. jackson for a hot second after bragging about how great he is her and Geralt just clean house at this point you know they nail the tail down to the deck Geralt's able to drag it over to the water wheel so it gets torn off easily and Siri essentially did the Babe Ruth, right? She pointed at the weak point, came down from above, danger from above with Geralt's sword, killed it instantly. Game set match
3: there's so much stuff i love about the scene you know we talk about a lot of action together mike but again i i just love so much when the terrain is used well and the way that they were able to feature the boat the water wheel like acting as a separator to like keep kind of gerald to the other side and they have to do the sword toss and it's fantastic you end up in this kind of like hallway fight on there on either side ah. of the wheel and siri like climbing up onto it the way that he like uses the wheel for the tail um to your point calling it out like i love that it's a fight brought daylight on the water you know um so like i can forgive it for not maybe looking as good as, as some of the things along the way but i think it looks pretty good like it feels yeah. like a reptile's tail being like ripped ripped off of this massive creature as it hits the water wheel i like you know siri getting banged up a little bit not being like wickedly competent and Geralt trusting her enough to like get her in that much danger like the point point and, where she and throw up,
2: her his freaking sword as well Yep
3: it's fantastic that he like disarms like that the sword toss is great I love all this kind of stuff like tracking the weapon movements and everything it's one of these things that like in contemporary D&D gets a little bit hand waved more than I'm comfortable with so I love the idea that like dropping your sword is like a really big deal that's really bad you know Um, and the big like final shot of her kind of leaping off the top for the head impaling like very cool dude I thought it's a pretty good fight you know not the best of the season or the series necessarily but like i was really happy with the way they utilized the boat for this whole battle
2: Yeah, and particularly from a siri perspective like if anything i could take away from this is that yeah let's get a reminder that siri was well trained because when it came to the end of season two unfortunately she gets possessed and cannot necessarily show that off in a real badass way and she had like the one move in episode one but besides that she really hasn't had the ability to Fight that much outside of the random wyvern stuff last episode. This felt very much on its own. It makes me very excited for volume two, if and when she has to fight her way out of a corner for the umpteenth time. Speaking of fighting your way out of a corner, unfortunately, this is what Jennifer is going to do. She's just minding her own business, and it seems like she was trying to portal herself somewhere else, and that got intercepted. She gets thrown into these steleicite shores meets up with who she thinks is Gerald, but is really an illusion, Michael, as he starts to fight her. She will eventually dispel of him and go back through it, but it's become very clear to her that, again, this mystery man that they have been speculating about, the call is coming from inside the Tower of the Gull.
3: Uh, yeah I love it the whole the way that they're dealing with this thing with like the portals and the corruption and the portals and the black and it's been like a, a kind of like story beat that we've had a couple people articulate already right I love that there's this whole energy with the wheel of time and the the magic system in that world and there's like two halves of the magic system and one half is corrupted right uh, and and it like it very much physically reminds me of that the way that they're showing it it seems indicative of like this is not the same as all this other magic right um and and that's like just so interesting the use of illusions michael you know i love that uh there used to be all these dnd spells back in the day that were like shadow conjurations where you could create an entirely like fictitious illusion that could really hurt somebody and do psychic damage to them if they believed in it. So I I thought it was cool. You know, the whole beat there. I mean, it gets us at least for a moment for that initial, like, wait, what's happening Uh, as Geralt like pulls out his tiny little dagger and starts swinging away. But like Jennifer figuring stuff out always makes me happy. She feels it felt for a moment in season two, like, Her intelligence was getting, like, hand-waved a little bit, and I like seeing her competent, be competent.
2: Yeah, and I think it's very different from, like, the Mary suing of, like, oh, well, she's just good at everything. Again, this is someone who has been very talented since the very beginning. She just has had some stumbling moments, and, again, i much rather have the pendulum swing away from the very flawed character that we saw in Season 2 in favor of, like, Maybe someone who knows a bit too much, but is able to fight her way out of every corner, Yennefer, that we get here in episode three. And she's going to continue that feistiness into outside the portal as well. As she, to say is going to say one final time, is bringing Sira here the best idea? And Yennefer's like, listen, I was at my most dangerous when I was alone. The last thing she needs right now is to be sent away.
3: Uh, yeah, and I think that there's something to that, Too, like all of the Yennefer uh, having more conviction. I mean, I think that like the time is earned, right? All of that nonlinear storytelling, like Yennefer spent a long time in school, she did her homework, she earned her degrees, you know. Um, But again, the way the same way that I'm talking about, like, you know, Geralt's growth and his change over the course of the series as a whole. Yennefer's changed, right? She's a person who's like grown and changed. And as this weird little amalgamation of a family unit has come back together and they've put their trust in one another that's empowering i think right that's sometimes the thing that you need as a person like to be able to believe in yourself when the people around you whom you love and care about so much when they're able to put their faith in you that can like raise you up when when you don't have the wind under your own sails right so i really appreciate the like Jennifer returned to form as she's like gaining more and more confidence in herself and what she's doing here and like all of the decision making it's very cool
2: well she is about to meet up with her own found family here as gerald siri and yaskier are going to hit land before they do siri is like having some very last minute cold feet of okay listen, it was really cool when we killed that monster. Let's just keep doing that. But Geralt is going to give her the quick recap of what he saw in episodes two and three. And is like, (laughs) no, we got to find the answer to this. I'm sorry. There's a lot of doppelganger you's that are trying to be homebrewed in some sort of weird lab. We got to stop this off at the pass. And so Yen is going to meet them at the pass. And here we get finally the true reconciliation of Geralt and Yennefer. Again, I know that some people felt like it came too quickly in episode one. Josh and I both argued that we got like a soft pause on that at the end of the episode when she kind of leans in for the kiss and he backs away. He clearly does not hear. But I adore the fact that it is done without their own words. That it is Yaskier and Siri, who have some awesome scenes together, by the way, which I love. The two these two characters, just recall, did not meet. Until like the final couple of episodes of season two, because Yasker was off doing his own thing and Siri was off with Geralt. And so I love that now they have built this rapport together for these next couple scenes that we're going to see. And just the bravery and the simplicity in the choice to have these two reconcile. But any dialogue that we dream up would probably not match up to like the reality of what could probably be written for them. So why not have characters stand in for them and have them reconcile by doing their dialogue for them?
3: Uh, this I think is my favorite scene of the show mm. to the whole like reconciliation of, of the, uh, I really liked episode one of season three because I felt like it conveyed an incredible amount of time in a really short period. And that's like, can be challenging, but I love that little, like homey vibe of all of them, like moving around and like, it sold me on more time than we actually had, uh, to like the use of this scene and the reconciliation without their own words. I'm pretty sure from the homework I did, this was the Sepkowski original, that this was a scene written in the book where the two of them are kind of watching Geralt and Yennefer reunite through the door. And a lot of like what Yaskier's saying there is kind of articulated in the book. I think it's a little bit uh, like higher fantasy in its presentation in that way. The language is a bit more flowery than we get in the writing of the show. But it's brilliant, right? Like the, the, to your point, the relationship between Yazger and Siri, it's fantastic, man. Because he's so juvenile and so focused on the things of a child and she's this child who's so serious and is like so focused on like her future and all the expectations of like these really powerful adults in her life that have placed expectations on her so the him drawing out her youthfulness in yeah. a way and being like it's okay to like troll them a little bit we could just sit here and make fun of them for a minute like that's okay while also being like so poignant and loving at the end like now he's apologizing uh, I thought it was fantastic it like really cracked me up and I think like it sells that these two finally like are reconnecting after everything they've been through you know he gets that like she cares about Siri a great deal and regardless of anything like he can that through now um, but the two of them are delightfully fun together very good vibe
2: yeah and Freya Allen has a great Henry Cavill as Geralt impression as well yes, I'm so glad really she pulled good. that out and I also love the effect as well of Siri was doing Geralt and Yasker was doing Yennefer as well a bit of a gender bending but yeah I love the poetry that came out of that final exchange of dialogue I forgive you for your foolish words and deeds your lack of faith and hope for your obstinance doggedness for your sulking and posing which are unworthy of a man It's so good. And I forgive you for being a wily witch who rarely listens and even more rarely admits to being wrong, who is stubborn and stuck up and self-righteous. Let's never do that again. Uh, And then it ends up on the button of Yasker saying, is there a unicorn nearby by any chance? And if you're a fan of the game, you know people have been waiting for that unicorn to come about.
3: Indeed they have. Uh, I'm aware of the unicorn, and so it made me giggle, Uh, but I have not played. I really should go play the game.
2: Yeah, the games are fantastic. And listen, after this next batch of episodes, we're going to have quite the long offseason to prepare ourselves for not only a new Witcher season, but a new Witcher lead actor. Let's continue the Yaskier and Siri party, though, as their party will continue to their lodging for the night. So Yaskier was given the role essentially of babysitter, even though he would blanch at the idea for Ciri's sake. She's going to school him at cards, but he's going to school her in the ways of life advice. She's going to feel bad that he can't go to the conclave, but he's going to affirm, you don't have to prove what you're going to be in the future. And there is, again, just such a sweet moment where like he sings her to sleep, and obviously this will lead to a very different gesture of love in the next scene. But again, this is something that's very much show-don't-tell of They haven't had much of a dynamic before this episode and this really represents to me just like how warm these two really are to each other in such a short amount of time
3: yeah it's great it's really endearing i thought they were playing gwent for a minute i know enough about the game to know that um it's fun like she beats him he's annoyed always the whole thing of like her enjoying taking his money and again like just developing that relationship um as much as like you know knowing that we're going forward with this show and like these are going to be persistent characters i'm glad to like see them connect and and the whole, like, little bit of a bit of, like, him being annoyed that he's not been invited to Aretusa, but he's got a babysit. But ultimately, like, there's something endearing to him about that. He does like this kid, right? Um, yeah. And he's able to, like, connect with her and, like, appreciate that. And then he even, like, steps it up, Mike. Like, in a totally unyaskier way, he, like, thinks danger's afoot and he puts himself in the light of fire. What is going on?
2: Yes, but also possibly put Siri in the line of fire in the process. This is the last we'll actually see of Siri in volume one. She'll be left sleeping, and as we'll find out at the end of next episode, things are afoot at Aratusa, and so I would imagine that the siege was coming in elsewhere on the island as well. So it's possible that Yaskir might have left Siri high and dry to get some nookie as he finds out the intruder was Radovid who is going to try to come out of his shell a bit to him. He's going to admit the only good part of this mess was meeting you. This is when we get to the exchange I mentioned before, where he mentions he's scared. Yaskier says, just you saying that makes you braver than you know. Radovid replies that he has finally found the secret ingredient to what makes Yaskier who he is. You don't just see people, you see the best of them. And here we get such... A beautifully sweet gesture where he gets the loot and he tried to learn Yaskir's song, which is tough to do, I would imagine, in that setting, right? He can't just go online and, like, look up the tabs to it. He had to memorize the way Yaskir was playing the song that one time and try to mimic him.
3: No, you cannot Google those lyrics, yeah. Yeah. Um it works for me you know I'm not sure how I feel necessarily about Radovar as a character yet but I really like the idea of like the overlooked unassuming like hedonistic brother who's like got it way more together than anybody thinks the fact that he's like leaning into that presentation is pretty interesting to me and then there's this whole thing happening on the side that seems again very genuine right um the like theme that like I'm putting out here today I guess is Like, I'm interested in whether or not this is, like, a story ultimately about, like, his loyalty to his brother, his loyalty to his kingdom. Presumably that will be challenged in some way versus, like, his affection for Yazgir, this budding love between them. I know, obviously, there were, like, a lot of reactions about this, uh, like, seeming reveal of Yazgir's bisexuality. Like, was that a reveal? (laughs) I don't know. No, I mean,
2: literally, there was a scene last episode where his lover is, like... Yeah, you pretty much sleep with anyone and anything. Yeah. Yep, guilty as charged.
3: It seemed like it tracked from me from the beginning that this is just a man who loves people, you know? But that whole notion of like, uh, again, like in terms of like the character progression or whatever, and just interrogating Yazgir's philosophy a little bit. It's really great to hear somebody say, it's not just that you see people and that it's not just about the entertainment and the narcissism and all of it. You see the best in people. And there's something like hopeful and aspirational about that, that you need in a grim, dark fantasy setting, right? There's like a reason why one of our main characters is like a young person. And I think that there's like an inherent optimism in the trajectory of that character, hopefulness, I should say at least, that works, that like juxtaposed against this really gray, grim backdrop of the world. It makes them pop a little bit more. It makes you really root for them, right? Um, So I I think it humanizes both of them in a great way.
2: This works for me so, so well as a culmination of a little four episode storyline and seemingly continuing. I hope these two crazy kids work out because Yaskier was built up from the beginning as this sort of foppish comic relief, right? That he was a ne'er-do-well. He brought Geralt with him to Sintra to that wedding in the first place that gave him Siri by proxy because like... He needed protection because he slept with so many people's wives. And so it's always a fun trope to me to have like the rogue gain a heart and for the comic relief to become like the lead character of their own story. And I think that's what happens. The fact that, yes, his music is very well done. Again, toss a coin to your Witcher is such a bop. But the fact that someone has such affection for his music and what he does and who he represents when there's been so many punchlines about like people not knowing who he is or not liking his music again i think was not a huge dissatisfaction from that comic beat it just goes to show that like every pot has a lid in this case and i think even though radovid is only a character that was brought in in episode one i do think it built really nicely i think in retrospect you see they actually kind of start on first base in the first couple of episodes with how much affection radovid has for yaskir and how much yaskir admires it and you really track it throughout these episodes that yaskir finally meets him at that position here when he not only sees radovid see him in a way that no one else has but like having so much admiration for what he does and his life, his art that he's able to mimic it back to him that this means so much to me. I'm going to try to communicate to you what you make me feel. It's I think a a really subtly beautiful series of events that I would only imagine will lead to tragedy for these two, unfortunate
3: Oh, yeah, something horrible happens to one or both of them. I mean, it's poignant, right? Like, we joke about, like, oh, he can't Google search it, but this is a thing that I've spent decades thinking about because of the time that I have spent managing these worlds in Dungeons & Dragons games, but think of a world where there is no mass media, there is no pop culture. Like, forget to turn the dial on your radio or push the buttons on your television of like the 1970s like it just doesn't exist you want to hear music you wait for four months until the bard rolls into town and he sings 12 songs and drives away you know what i mean and so there's the idea that this is like a powerful, had a powerful impact on Radivir, right? That at some mm. point he heard Yasker's music, maybe even not yasger playing it, but like somebody else playing it again. And like, it moved him, it impacted him, it stirred emotions in him. Like, dude, that resonates with me so much. You know, like we live in this world of mass media where we're like, we can barely keep up with the glut of content that is perpetually coming at us. And if you really like stop down to think about a world like so deprived of art and of music and of all these like things that we take so for granted it's like disposable right Mm -hmm. um and like it, it could like change the course of a person's life to hear that one song that like made you think a little bit differently you know so i love the impact there the notion that like this guy was really really moved by the bard the bard's important for that reason you
2: know yeah exactly shouldn't be relegated to the back he's the lead singer Damn it! <laughs> well, let's continue to, uh, I guess, build to a group number. I suppose with this final couple of scenes, as we see our couple of investigatorial pairs decide to connect on different counts. So, Istrid and Triss are going to come together in the secret tunnels and use a locator spell to figure out that the book is behind some sort of ornate lock. That will eventually be revealed to be Stregabores. Stregabore is certainly on the brain of Yennefer and Geralt, who try to figure out: okay, clearly this is all connected. Who hates Yennefer, can create illusions, and has a history of experimenting on young women? Well, that is triple jeopardy for old Stregabor. I know in the moment Josh and I were like, Okay, the fact that they targeted Stregobor here in the penultimate episodes means it's definitely not Stregobor. Rich, (laughs) in the moment, did you agree with that?
3: Yes, yes. Stregobor, like, I just have, I'm so all over the place, Mike. Like, talk about a guy that I expected. We see him in that first episode or whatever. Like, I never expected him to come back. I thought he'd be like a one and done. The fact that Stregobor is still alive, giving people a hard (laughs) time is amazing and delights me. And I was like, yeah, there's no chance it's Stregobor.
2: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, well, listen, we're going to be talking about a lot of him in the next couple months, considering he is going to be playing Grand Admiral Thrawn in the upcoming Ahsoka. But right now, he is the target, perhaps, of a mass murder here, as we have sort of our one-day-more sequence, right? Where we have, as Stregobor is pacing malevolently through Aratuza, everyone's preparing to go to the Conclave. We have Dijkstra and Philippa, we have Triss and Istrid. we have Tseya and Vilgefortz, and we have Geralt and Yennefer. And it is all beautifully underlined by every character saying, are you sure about this? And especially now looking back on the various motives and places the characters are, both physically and mentally, I love how that plays because that one phrase means so many different things to mm-hmm. so many different characters.
3: It's fantastic. The way that the layers of it, are you sure? Are you sure? Cause we don't even know some of what they're talking about. Uh, it was great. That whole little like sequence at the end of them all moving around, right. And like board like moving in the opposite direction of the people coming down the hallways. Uh, he's such Lars Mickelson, He's such like an imposing looking guy. Certainly when you put him in these costumes to you, right. But it, it was great i thought it was a great ending to an episode it leaves you with that kinetic energy it really is like bingeable man you want to go right into the next one
2: yeah and again it's almost like an episode one conclusion where it's like a little bit of a softball by comparison of like yeah they're gonna open the doors and you know you're just gonna go into the next episode and you should because it is a big one but before we finish our coverage of episode four i want to tug on a couple of loose threads like Very brief storylines that we didn't discuss, but will be the last time we see these characters so we can talk about implications down the line. Fringilla is just like whiling away the hours in a tavern. She's going to try to get uh, some information out of one of these random barflies about boats that are missing along the coast. Any thoughts of Fringilla in general?
3: I'm going to plagiarize some anonymous Redditor's thoughts here. But I love Frangilla living like her hot girl summer, Mike. It's just like <laughs> Frangilla's found her best self, man. Frangilla like partying down. Like it was at first I was like, okay, where is this? This is leading to disaster, right? She's going to get like crazy drunk and burn the town down. Something bad's going to happen here. And her ultimately just kind of like blowing off lecherous dudes and like uh, playing with like prestidigitation at the bar there. Like, I, yeah. I love it, dude. This is maybe hot take the most that I've ever liked for jilla was in this scene right here i really like loved it especially re-watching it
2: well listen this is why you pay more attention to all of your customers because you would have noticed the jar of jewels instead of the jar of flowers yeah really big
3: miss there buddy these guys like they're imbibing a little bit too much of the product that they're selling over here but nobody paying attention her like at least i'm not a mage you know uh, it's very very fun very fun stuff
2: One very minor final note that I want to end things on because I think it will lead to something much bigger down the line. Can we talk about this Redanian messenger Applegat? So just as a reminder, this is the guy that Siri randomly ran into in the tavern in the beginning of episode two and had her first vision of him getting shot on his horse and dying. And we got a bit of a scare with that close call in episode two with with, uh, Visimir. But here it finally ends up happening. And at the worst time, as Applegat is given a message to deliver to the Redanian Navy to essentially, like, launch the attack, it happens at dawn. But, of course, he dies before he can send the message. So, Rich, is this going to be, in retrospect, our, like, for want of the nail moment that because in true Shakespearean fashion, the messenger got killed before he could send the message, Redania doesn't get its reinforcements and maybe they are a bit undermanned for whatever is planned for Volume 2
3: yeah, this has got to be... I mean, like, we did take the beat to see him go down. Uh, We just wait for the other shoe to drop now, right? But it feels like there's some critical failure that occurred here. It, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe, like, somebody, you know, finding the corpse, getting the information, and it's even, like, one more twist on top of that, of, like, because they know that the message didn't arrive, they can then, like, counter-maneuver against them. But that feels pretty accurate, like, yeah.
2: Yeah, I would imagine, because... Again, we'll talk about this at the end of next episode. Like, our main characters seem pretty SOL if we have all of what Vilgeforts is doing, which he and himself is pretty powerful. If he brings in Rianz and Lydia, all of Nilfgaard, and maybe all the elves against, like, a small yet powerful group of mages that are caught, you know, with their pants down, that's going to be a very tough corner to fight their way out of. A, I trust our main characters, but B, I would imagine that hopefully having some numbers down with the form of a missing navy could certainly help them end up victorious as we know that they will and this volume ends very victorious with the next episode the art of illusion all is not as it seems as we will hear over and over and over again this is the rashomon episode rich the conclave told multiple times as we finally get the revelation that vilgefortz was behind it the whole time Give me your thoughts on the outset about this episode. Are you excited to get back into it, considering how unconventional, timey-wimey it is?
3: Yeah, I'm pretty hyped. I really like the way that they ended. I didn't realize at first that we were splitting up season three, but I think that it ends strong uh, to like launch us into the back half. Um, I, I, I deeply enjoyed season three, probably more than season two as a whole, and in large part because of the beginning and the ending.
2: Well, I deeply enjoy getting to talk with you, Rich. Again, this will not be the last time you'll be joining us once again for next episode. That's where I'll give the opportunity for you to do all the plugs of all the fantastic stuff you're doing. We'll be back in a couple days anyway. So don't you, tarry, everybody. We are just a couple days away from finishing up our coverage of Volume 1. And then Josh and I will pop back before you know it to do our coverage of the final three episodes of Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia. Can you believe it, Rich?
3: I cannot. I'm a little heartbroken about it. I've been talking to some folks in Twitter DMs that are saying, be optimistic. Could you imagine how tough it is to be a Himesworth that's got to step into a Cavill's shoes? Uh, and I I said, that's a very lovely take. I will try to be optimistic, but man, it's going to be hard to lose him in this role. I'm also feeling a little defensive for Henry. He's had an up and down kind of year, you know, mm-hmm. but I uh, I'm pretty hyped to talk about Warhammer someday, Mike. So I'm excited to see what these final episodes of him in the role will bring to us. He's just, it's been a gift so far and I'm sure that it will carry throughout the end of season three.
2: It's completely agreeable. We will keep painting figures and painting a picture, including Vilgefortz's favorite. As next episode, it all comes to a thrilling, dancing, singing conclusion in episode five of season three. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. When you listen fast to all our podcasts, an impressive feat since our network is vast. There's actually much more behind an online door. Become a patron and enjoyment will soar. Many different perks, a Discord to lurk, get early releases and maybe some merch. Podcast exclusively, like extra and YA. It's but tons of content to fill out your day. Toss a coin to Patreon, support post show recaps. Support post show recaps. Oh. Toss a coin to patreon come join our community
1: hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing